to be a part of the family of God, to be part of the church, is to be on the mission of God. There is actually no one of us that is on the sideline, but every single person whom God has rescued is involved and engaged in his mission in the world. My goal today, and I'll just be explicit about it as we bring our global missions conference to a close, is to encourage every one of you here to strengthen your commitment to God's mission, to think clearly about ways that you might serve and send and go and give and on and on. Every single one of us has a part to play. My method in doing so is to expound the vision that we get of the one final city in Revelation 21 and 22. And I do invite you to open up in your Bibles to this text as we'll dig into it a good bit together. Our conference theme has been Jesus in global cities. Jesus in global cities. And there is this one final global city to which the world is headed. God gave John a vision of this final city, not just to comfort the church of his day, though certainly it does that. And I hope that as we look at it together today, we, will too, we too will be comforted and encouraged. It is so easy to get distracted, to get downtrodden, to get overwhelmed by the challenges and difficulties and brokenness of this world in which we live. And we desperately, as God's people, need to see a vision of the end to see the clouds part for a moment and to get a clear vision. And God gave John this vision of that end to encourage the church of his day and the church throughout the centuries, of course. But it's more than that because the vision that God gives to John, which we record as, or which he records as the whole book that we call Revelation, was also a vision given to the church to galvanize the church in God's mission. An overwhelming theme of the book of Revelation is to conquer or to overcome. And at the end of each of the seven letters that Jesus sends by way of the Spirit to the churches, he finishes with, to the one who conquers, I will give. To the one who conquers, I will give. So the vision, the ability to see and to open our eyes, to see what God is doing in the present and to see what God will do in the future is meant not just to encourage us, but also to galvanize us that we might conquer with Jesus himself and bear faithful witness. To conquer in Revelation doesn't mean that we go out and wipe people out. It rather means that we are willing to be wiped out in mission for Jesus in bearing witness to him. That by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, they loved not their lives even unto death. To stand faithfully we must see rightly that's one way of thinking about the purpose of the book of revelation and the capstone of john's vision is this final city the end to which all history is headed we'll see four dimensions of this final city each of which both encourages us deeply i hope and informs our mission today that this final city is God-infused, global, garden-like, and glory-filled. So first, it's God-infused. Look with me at verse 22 of Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, 
and the Lamb. No temple. Why no temple? Because God himself is the temple, which means that his presence floods the entire city. John's vision makes this clear in two ways, among others, both in the text right before the one that we read. If you look back in, verses six, in verse 16, it, it says, And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. That is, this city, its dimensions are a perfect cube. Well, what else was a perfect cube in ancient Israel? It was the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the temple of God, where his presence touched this present world, the earth. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, we read that the Holy of Holies was 20 cubits in width and length and height. So John is communicating something very clearly about the vision of this city. Furthermore, the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple was overlaid with gold. And the perfect cubed city here in Revelation, if you look at verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The vision makes clear that the final city is the temple. It is therefore infused with the direct access to the presence of the living God. God now dwells among his people. Ezekiel 37 verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we read in verse 3, if you look with me in chapter 21, and behold, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Or in verse 5 of chapter 22, fulfilling the promise of Isaiah, 69 verses, Isaiah 60 verses 19 and 20, they will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And then we see further in chapter 22 that the throne of God is there. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The throne of God up to this point in John's vision was clearly in the heavenly place. In Revelation 4 and 5, the heavens are pulled back and John can see into the throne room of the cosmos, but it's not down on earth. See the same thing in Revelation 7. John sees the multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation praising God, but it's in the heavenly places where this is happening. And yet here at the end, in the vision of the final city, that throne has come down. It is in the new heavens and the new earth. God dwells with us. And his vision declares, look with me at verse 4 of chapter 22, probably, honestly, maybe one of the most astonishing verses in the entire Bible. How's that first set up? <laughs> they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There was one person on whose forehead the name of God was written in the Old Testament. It was the high priest of Israel. The high priest had the name Yahweh written on his turban. The high priest could go into that perfect cube one time a year very, very carefully to bear 
to bring the sins of, to, for the sake of atoning for the sins of the people of God. I mean, what John says here is extraordinary. It's, un, it's quite honestly unbelievable. It's the best news that we have about the future. It is that you and I, like the high priest of Israel, will bear the name of God on our foreheads. Which means that you and I will be high priests because, of course, we are connected to the one great high priest, to Jesus himself. And that we will not enter into the perfect cube one time a year for the sake of all the people, but we, all the people, are now high priests together. We will be in the perfect cube for all eternity. In the unmediated direct presence of God. You remember when Moses says in Exodus 33, Lord, show me, please show me your glory. You remember the Lord's response to him? He says, no, I, uh, you know, I, I'll put you in the, I'll hide you in a rock and I'll let my glory pass by so you can get a glimpse of me. But no one shall see my face for no one living can see my, no one can see my face and live. So when we get to the gospel of John, to the prologue, John says, no one has ever seen God. But then we read here, they shall see his face. His final city will be so infused with the presence of God that we will behold his glory face to face. Now we see as in a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. It's incredible. This is our future. This is the final city to which we belong. And we will know God's presence in a whole new way. This should be deeply encouraging, but it also informs our mission. Because, of course, God did not stay confined to the Holy of Holies, but he became flesh. He dwelt among us. We have beheld his glory, John says. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the presence of God came in the person of the Son among us and now continues to be among us in the person of the Spirit. And we are called to expand his presence. We are currently the temple on earth, the church, the people of God. We are to expand God's presence throughout the world as a part of our mission. It is our aim to help people to return to the God for whom they were made, to know him, to enjoy him, and to find genuine joy and peace. We heard a, a story this week from a Muslim background Christian believer. And there was a little detail in his story as he described being um, broken in body as a young boy, sick and in bed and unable to walk. But throughout that journey, there were two people who came to him day by day to pray with him. He was in a country where Christians weren't welcome, a country all of you would know. There were two believers there, and they came to his bedside and prayed. About four weeks into that incapacity for him, this light and truth met him in a dream and said, rise up and walk. He couldn't walk. And in that moment, he was healed. Our mission is to bring the presence of God to the people of the nations who are broken and paralyzed by sin. And you and I have a part to play in that mission in bringing God's presence because the spirit of God dwells inside of each one of us. We are to expand his presence in a way that just anticipates 
in a small way, the future city that is coming when his presence will flood all things. And these two people faithfully in this Muslim nation brought his presence to the bedside of the sick boy and then God did the rest. We don't have to do it all, but we're present. And God then meets people in powerful ways. This is a God-infused city. Secondly, it is a global city. And I mean this in two senses to parse this out. First, I mean it in the sense that the final city is not just a city that exists within the new creation, but it is a, a, a way of speaking about the entirety of the new creation. So look with me back at verse at chapter 21, just as Paul, as John begins this to see this vision, he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. That is a vision of the comprehensive end of time reality that is the new creation. And then he says in verse two, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I want to suggest to you that these are two different ways of describing the same reality. That John is seeing the vision of the new creation and then he sees the city which itself is the new creation. In other words, if you were riding a train one day, maybe we'll get to do that in the new creation, there would not be a stop called New Jerusalem, but rather your, your travel through the mountains and the hills and the valleys and the plains and the cities and the villages would be in the, in the realm of the new Jerusalem. It is the new creation reality in full. The reason that I would make this argument is that John clearly, as we've seen, portrays this new Jerusalem as a temple. And this is the key to understanding the city as encompassing the whole global reality of the new creation. The temple of the Old Testament was intentionally built as a microcosmic model of the entirety of the heavens and the earth. The imagery in the temple was meant to reflect the entire cosmos. And this signified the end time, time hope of the people of God that one day God's presence would flood the entire creation not to be contained. This is in fact what God intended in his first temple, what we call the Garden of Eden as well. For there God was present walking in the garden. And God puts his image in the temple that is you and me created in the image of God, male and female. And then he tells us to subdue the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. God longs for his image, his presence, which is in the temple to be spread across the globe, to flood the whole earth. Israel knew this, and so when they built the temple according to God's instruction, they reflected this reality that the presence of God was in the cosmos and would flood the cosmos. And this is, in fact, what we see in the final city, that vision coming true. But I said that it was global in two senses. So that's the first, in the sense that this new city is the whole of the new creation. But secondly, this is global in that it encompasses, or in that, as we've talked about this last week, we've talked about global cities, Global cities that are the melting pots of the present world. Places where the unreached peoples of the world, the ethne, the nations have come to reside. So in Boston, we can find many people groups and cultures represented. We can reach the nations right here in our own city or in the cities across the world in Astana or Istanbul or Beijing or London. This has actually been impressed upon me pretty profoundly since coming to Park Street Church, but even in the, in the past five months or so, as we've had newcomers dinners and hosted them at our home, 
the, the people at these dinners is just a, a, a beautiful reflection of God's diverse world. People from all kinds of ethnicities coming to Boston, coming to Park Street Church. They are here. Do you see who's present in this final city? Look again back with me at the text. Verse 24, by its light the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Verse 3, or sorry, verse 2 of chapter 22, that the leaves of the tree will be for the healing of the nations. This global city is a place for the nations, for the glory and honor of the nations are brought into it. For readers of the book of Revelation up to this point, this will come as no surprise. We remember the vision of the heavenly throne room where the praise is going on from this great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. And this reality that existed in the heavenly realms is now brought into the new creation, this global city populated by the nations. We didn't just hear that one testimony on Wednesday night. We heard another one from a woman from a Muslim background as well. And I would say that both of these testimonies were incredibly powerful as they spoke of how the Lord Jesus met them, changed them, won them over, gave them life and peace and forgiveness and genuine rest. And I would say to you that we, the church in the West, the church in America, desperately need the witness of the global church, don't we? We need the witness of their testimony, their passion, and their zeal. This is a part of the call of God to take the presence of God to all nations. And all nations then will come into this final city. Our commission in the mission of God, yes, is to be encouraged by the global reality, but is also to be commissioned by it and to be informed by it in our mission. It is to go across the street and across the world to reach the nations to bring them into the presence of the living God. So the city is God-infused, it's global, and then thirdly, it's garden-like. This is good news for all of you who love nature. Maybe all this talk of cities has got some of you down over the past week. You love to get out and see the natural world that God has created. Well, this city, this new Jerusalem, has Eden-like properties, if we look at the text carefully. It's pulling from an end time vision in Ezekiel chapter 47, which itself in Ezekiel alludes to the vision of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. There is a river of the water of life that parallels the river in Genesis 2, which starts in Eden and waters the garden and then turns into four rivers that water all the cosmos and the earth. And here the river, like the river in Ezekiel 47, flows out from the temple flows out from the throne of God and of the Lamb, from the very presence of God. Through the middle of the street of the city, verse 2 of chapter 22, on either side of the river, there's the tree of life. That should ring a bell. Thinking back to the vision of the Garden of Eden in Genesis, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree, as we saw, were for the healing of the nations. There will be nothing accursed the curse of Genesis 3 will be undone. This is paradise restored. You know, we associate gardens with healing. Many years ago, I was paying a visit to a very sick child at Children's Hospital, and I, I needed to pass a couple of hours. And so I was 
just wondering where to go. And I discovered that they were having a grand opening of a brand new healing garden on the eighth floor of, on the 11th floor of Children's Hospital, 8,000 square feet outdoors. It's a beautiful space, but called the healing garden, meant to be an oasis in the midst of the hospital complex. We associate gardens and plants and open space with life-giving and healing realities still to this day as a culture. And it's no doubt a reflection back on that first garden, which gave life or the potential for life that would never end, that we rejected. This final city will restore what once was in Eden itself, the river of life and the tree of life that sustained life for the nations. It's interesting to note, I think, that the unending life of God in this final city appears to be mediated by the stuff of the new creation, by the river and by the tree and its fruit and its leaves. This new creation of God is not anti-matter, it's deeply material. And yet this material is then taken up by God and his life-giving purposes to sustain the never-ending, abundant, end-of-time life that God gives to his people. We, of course, get a glimpse of this even today in the sacraments of the church and the Lord's Supper and baptism where God uses by his grace these matters, material elements of the world to communicate to us his life and his grace in powerful ways. All of this will be amplified in the new creation of God. Our mission, yes, is to be encouraged by the healing of the nations in which we will participate at the end of time. But it is, of course, to bring this healing into the present broken world of our day. It's not so much the river of life or the tree of life. It is the man, Jesus, who is the living water from which if we drink, we will never thirst again, who is the bread of life that we eat and we find life in our souls. We are called to be about the healing and life-giving mission of God in a broken world across the nations to enable the sick to be made well, the one with the shriveled hand to have an, a, a new hand, the blind to see. And I do mean this in a very literal way, in a sense that we are still called to participate in the healing ministry of the Lord Jesus himself as the church today. And we pray to that end in this community. And we believe that God does heal, sometimes through extraordinary means, oftentimes through the normal means of science and medicine. But we believe that God is healing and that we are a part of that calling to bring healing to the nations even today to anticipate this. But of course, we remember that the great cancer is not in fact physical, it is spiritual. And it is the cancer of sin that is suffocating the life of image bearers around this globe. And our mission is to bring the Eden-like healing of the gospel to the nations. Fourth and finally, the city is glory-filled. It is, of course, filled with the glory of God. Perhaps that is obvious. We've talked about the presence of God being there. And this text communicates that in no uncertain terms. Look at verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives, its light, give it, gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. Of course, this is referring back to Isaiah 60 as well. The glory of God is its light. Or look at verse 11, if you've got the text open in chapter 21. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. This 
final city is infused with the glory of God and we shall see his glory and and the city will be radiating in that glory and we his servants in verse 3 of chapter 22 his servants will worship him that word there for servants by the way is doulos which we've looked at some in recent weeks in our series in Romans chapter 1 but we his servants to serve him is perfect freedom we will worship him we will see his glory and worship him in this final city Our worship will be found not just in the praises that we sing, though, of course, even those of us who can't sing today will have beautiful voices to sing his praises in the final days. But we will worship him. Look at the end of our passage in verse 5. We will reign forever and ever. Our worship of the true king, of the God of heaven and earth, will be a worship that takes place in work and participation in the stewarding of the garden of the new creation. We will reign with him forever and ever. Work with no hint of futility. Work which will shape the materials of the new creation in greater and greater ways to bring glory and honor to his name. It is a vision that is beautiful and glorious and adds to the glory of God. But there's another glory in the city. Did you catch it? And this too is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 60. It is the glory and honor of the nations, verse 26. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Or a derivative in the kings of the earth in verse 24 will bring their glory into it. What is this glory and honor? I would suggest to you that these are the finest of human culture, that refinement of the stuff of creation that we work on today through human creativity and craftsmanship, through God-given gifts, this is the best of what we find in our global cities today. The parks, the symphonies, the poetry, the language, the architecture, the celebrations, perhaps even the games, and the sports, and the technology. Some of you want the Red Sox there, Patriots, I don't know about that. But this is culture, the best of what we have made. Currently in this world, it is infused with the problem and brokenness of sin. Often human culture is used as it was in the city of Babel long ago as a a counter to the glory of God, as a substitute, as a way for self-glory and self-exaltation. But we're told here that in this final city, the best of what we have made with the the God-given gifts that we have been given, that best will be brought in to this final city. God will use the world that we are making today in his power and his spirit to bring glory and adoration to himself in the new heavens and the new earth. This is an astonishing reality that we see here in the end. Mind-blowing, but its clear implication is that the work that we now put our hands to in the global cities of the world, this is not a waste, it's not a throwaway thing, but God honors this work, purging it and cleansing it and bringing it through his purging fires into the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth where it will do what it was always meant to do and to some degree what it even does today. I mean, I still can't, I haven't been to New York City that much, but when I get off the train at Penn Station and come out of the city, there's a bit of a breath, you know, breathlessness as you see this beautiful city that God has made. But it's so broken. Yet the best of it, that beauty, that order, That splendor will be brought in and it will do what it was now meant to do, not to point to the greatness of man, but to the point to the greatness of the God who made man in his image. 
to create and to fashion and to make culture. The theologian Richard Mao tells the story of a, a chapel service at Calvin College over 50 years ago that still sticks in his mind. The students leading the chapel were honoring God's creating purposes and they put together a slideshow, which must have been a feat back before there was PowerPoint and computers, I would remind you, uh, depicting both the beauty and the degradation of the earth. And the philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff was to speak right after the students did their part. And he got up and Mao says he's never forgotten this. And he thanked the students for their good work in what they had done. But then he pointed out that all their good scenes were splendors of the natural world. And all their bad scenes were of urban squalor. Trash on streets, skid rows, deteriorating buildings. And then he made this point to the students in chapel that day that the cities too were important parts of the creation that God loves and that they had beauty and glory among them that reflect his glory. There are goods in the cities and these are to be redeemed much like the goods of gold and frankincense, both of which are mentioned in Isaiah 60, by the way, and myrrh, I would add here, are brought by the Magi of the East to the cradle of the baby who is king of the world. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. This is so inspiring to us. It should inspire us in our work, in day-to-day -day jobs that God has given us, that we, that is a part of the mission of God, a part of the work that God is doing in the world. But it also is to, of course, inspire us in our mission. For as we go forth in the Spirit's power into the nations, to proclaim witness to the gospel of God. We are agents through whom human beings made in his image are liberated from the oppressive powers of sin and then able to use their God-given gifts to bring glory to his name in this present world. Whatever you do, Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. This is our mission informed by this vision. So we look to the end, to the final city, to encourage and inspire us about our ultimate destination and also to shape our ongoing participation in the mission of God in this broken world in which we find ourselves. We are pointing to that final city today following in the footsteps of Jesus, who brought God to us, all of us across the world, who brought healing and life, and who redeemed the work of our hands from self-glory to glorifying the God who made us. And we now, too, join Jesus on this mission of bringing God to the world, to the nations, of bringing healing and life, and of freeing the quest for human glory to now be directed to give glory to God. I said at the beginning my purpose would be explicit. I want you to join in this mission with a renewed zeal and commitment and fervor. There's one final, there's several final details that I didn't touch on in the text, but one final one that I want to point to you. Who will be in this city? Do you see the last verse in chapter 21? 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I just want to say very clearly that those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are not worthy of this city. There are no good people who have an entrance into the city by right. Every single one of us has fallen short and are by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, God has made a way for us to enter in through his merciful love at the cross of Jesus Christ that forgives, renews, reconciles, heals, empowers, and commissions you and me into a life that we do not deserve, but that we are privileged to live. And then he uses us that more and more people might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved and be brought in to this new life. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed, Paul asks. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they here without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You've all got beautiful feet to bring this good news into God's broken world that more and more people from every nation might be with us in that final city. You know, this glorious city is our future home. And that means this, that we do not cling to our present homes, our present cities, our present comforts, our present securities. But with Abraham, we are looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we say with the author of Hebrews that here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city that is to come. This future city is our aim. It is our hope. It is our ambition. It is our goal. It is what we long for. So let me say this to you at the end of our Global Missions Conference. You've only got one shot at this life. You've only got one opportunity to live this day and tomorrow, and this week, and this month, and this year for the Lord and for his glory. Will you do so? Will God break our hearts for the people that do not yet know him? Will we lay everything on the table over and over again and say, Lord, it's yours, all of it, send me wherever you will for whatever purpose you have with me, have your way. There is no room for complacency in our Christian lives. And there can be no assumption that God would never call me or you to do the most radical thing or to go to the most faraway place that you can think of for his name. He may also choose to call you just to across the street to bear witness to himself there. But every single one of you and me is called to lay our lives down at his feet as we seek the city that is to come, our final city, our final hope, and to be used by him. God has used Park Street Church so graciously for over two centuries to be a sending church, a church that takes seriously the mission of God informed by this vision of the final city that bears the presence of God into the world. And it is my hope by the grace of God and his mercy that the Lord will continue to infuse this community with a life and a passion and a zeal for his mission. And that every single one of us would give to God all that we have 
all of ourselves, all of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasure for his purposes, that more and more people from across the nations might enter into those gates that never close with us and give glory to the Lamb and to the Father who sits on the throne. Will you consider ways that you might step into this mission more and more to support our missionaries who are across the globe? Do you know their names? Do you pray for them? Will you support them financially? Will you join maybe a missionary care team or consider going on a short-term missions trip? Or will you join a ministry oriented to justice and mercy here in Boston? The peoples of the world are all around us in Boston and they're all around the globe and they're crying out for God, even if they don't know it. And God has come to us, commissioned us and called us to be his servants. May we serve him well, the one who served us so well. Here we have no lasting city. Don't get too comfortable. We seek the final city, the city that is to come. And what a city it is. God-infused, global, garden-like, and glory-filled. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for helping to peel back the curtain. Oh God, what an amazing gift to be your children. To know that we are, are granted access into this final city. That we will see you face to face. I pray that you would awaken us from our slumber. Thank you for the global church. For the Muslim background believers whose testimonies this week were a shot to our souls. God, thank you for the zeal of our own missionaries who give so much to serve you across the world. Thank you, Lord, for those in our church who pour out their lives to serve people in need in our own church and in our neighborhoods. How we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of the great privilege that it is to be your children and that you would call us again to go forward as your agents of mission. We ask it for your name, Jesus, to be exalted. For your glory, O oh God, to fill the earth. Amen.